Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Today, I'm sharing with you a conversation I had with Tenzin Priyadarshi on 728-2020 as part of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education Conversations on Compassion. Our conversation will be in two parts. The Venerable Tenzin Priyadarshi is a Buddhist monk ordained by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who is the founder of the MIT Center for Ethics and Values, and is internationally recognized as an expert on Buddhist philosophy, ethics, leadership, and socio-political issues. He's also been involved promoting empathy and conflict resolution. He's actually a Tribeca Disruptive Fellow and a former fellow at the Stanford Center for Advanced Studies in Behavioral Sciences. He has continued to be involved in the ongoing dialogue between Buddhism, meditation, and neuroscience. I hope you enjoy our conversation. It gives me great pleasure to introduce my friend and Buddhist monk, the venerable Tenzin Priyadarshi. It's funny when I posted this on actually my Facebook that we were having this event, an individual wrote me a comment and it said, the venerable Tenzin Priyadarshi is an innovative thinker, philosopher, educator, and polymath monk. And I think that actually is an appropriate description. I've had the joy and the pleasure of knowing Tenzin for many years. And in fact, we have traveled throughout the world together and have spent a great deal of time and conversation. So it's really wonderful to share the stage with him today. And what we're going to be talking about is his life, which he has documented through his memoir, Running Towards Mystery. So without further ado, Tenzin, thank you for being with us today. And I am very much appreciative. And so often we hear about books and uh, people send us books. And I have to tell you that uh, when I received Tenzin's book, and I don't read these types of books very often, but initially I read it or started it out of my friendship but at the end of the day, I could not put the book down, and it was uh, really wonderful to read, gave me some further insights into my friend, and also provided some very valuable lessons on wisdom, on compassion, and how to lead a life. Tenzin, good morning or good afternoon, or wherever each of you is in the world, uh, welcome. Thank you, Jim. a delight to be together with you this morning. You know, it's interesting because, of course, every one of our journey is unique. And frankly, if you sat with someone, you would appreciate that. But you have a particular story that's really quite extraordinary. Maybe you can tell us about how you made your decision to actually become a monk. Of course, I know, and I think everyone knows you're from India, but maybe you can just give us a brief overview of your background and what 
motivated you at a very young age to seek the contemplative life? I, I generally uh, describe that particular episode of my life as a non-rational decision. I was too young to, to say that it was a rational decision, but I don't think it was irrational either. And uh, it's, it's outlined in the book, and I have over the years tried to make it sound less and less dramatic uh, unsuccessfully. But it started with a series of dreams, repetitive dreams, when I was uh, about six years old. And by the time I was 10, uh, it kind of became unbearable, where uh, uh, I almost felt like I needed to uh, figure out what it is that I was seeing, you know, people and places. And so when I was 10, I just ran away from school and uh, uh, took a two-day train journey and arrived at this uh, place, which I later discovered was uh, one of the sacred sites uh, in the Buddhist tradition. Now, as, uh, as, as you and others may be aware, I don't come from a Buddhist family. I can't say I even come from a necessarily religious family. So it, it sort of you know, I got there at Vulture Peak and I felt at home and, and sort of made this instant decision that uh, that was the life I was going to live. Since then, I have questioned that every single day and I'm still here. So I guess it's a, it's a somewhat steady choice. <laughs> Why don't you tell us about that, though? I mean, here you arrive at Vulture Peak and it wasn't as if you were suddenly embraced. Uh, maybe you can briefly go over the subsequent events and maybe ultimately the reluctant acceptance by your family. I mean, obviously, a child your age traveling alone, showing up at a monastery, if you will, is unusual. But maybe you can tell us how your parents responded at the end of the day. I, I left, uh, you know, as, as I said, I ran away and the conditions sort of perfectly aligned in the ways of, uh, you know, me not knowing where I'm going and not having uh, uh, financial means to sort of guarantee my journey or anything of that nature. Uh, when I arrived at Vulture Peak, there was a cave there, and I had sort of made up my mind that I was going to spend the rest of my life in that cave, and uh, uh, only to be interrupted by the, the forest uh, uh, security personnel who encouraged me to uh, find the... Uh, the temple uh, on the next hill, which they thought was safer because uh, this cave was still sort of in a jungle with uh, snakes and wild animals and so on. And so I arrived at this temple and I knocked on the door and this uh, uh, wonderful monk opened the door. And without even uh, me saying hello, he said, oh, good, you're here. We were expecting you. And my response at that time was simply, oh, well, good, I am here. There was no conversation, no sort of clarification of, you know, who was expected, why were they expecting me, and so on. And I stayed there for about two weeks until I was discovered, discovered in the sense that, uh, of course, I was you know, uh, featured in the newspaper as the missing boy all over North India. And my parents were, of course, uh, you know, I can only now recognize the pain uh, that, that they went through at, uh, uh, at that moment in time. But basically, you know, I was brought back and, and uh, there's a chapter that I uh, refer to as trial by family, which is, you know, knowing Indian families, uh, my parents uh, brought together within a period of a day about 75 plus members of my family 
And I jokingly refer to that as my first Dharma talk in defense of Buddhist monasticism. <laughs> it was a, uh, it was basically nonstop question and answer for about, uh, grilling for about two hours or three hours. And, uh, you know, everybody thought I was going through an early teenage phase, but then, um, then it simply evolved to where I am now. There are many events, though, that seem, you could call it serendipity, you could call it mystery, you could call it metaphysical intervention that continued on this path. And you've really met some quite extraordinary individuals. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your time in the Japanese, I guess, Zen Buddhist temple and the individual you spent some time with? and your interaction with him, and if you will, how the nature of that interaction gave you some insights. I think, uh, uh, you know, it was a smaller school of Japanese Buddhism called uh, Nipponza Nyohoji. The founder of that school uh, had become uh, a close friends and associate of Mahatma Gandhi uh, as he had come to India in 1930s to... Um, you know, uh, to proselytize at that moment until he met Mahatma Gandhi. And then he realized that there was no reason for this country to be to be proselytized, a country that believed so strongly in the principles of nonviolence and so on. And um, after my parents brought me back to Calcutta, where they resided at that, that, period, that moment of my life, I, I had already sort of decided that I wanted to just, you know, find the first opportunity I could get to go back to Rajgir and just be in a cave. I had sort of uh, made up my mind that, I, that that's what I wanted to do. And uh, I had a few friends in, in, in school who were orphans or had grown, grown up in, in an orphanage that was run by Mother Teresa. And so I had this opportunity when I was visiting them to, to meet with Mother Teresa and uh, just to sort of hang around with her. And as I was hanging around with her, you know, just observing her demeanor, her personality, her work, I realized that uh, you know there's much to be done in the world, and and that religious life does not always imply being in remote regions or or being cut off from the world, and and so that was the first time, you know, as I said, I've I've thought about my decisions multiple times, but that was the first time I reconsidered this particular uh, decision of. Uh, uh, you know, being in a cave or in the mountains and, and, and deciding that that really part of the role of a, of being a contemplative was to sort of manifest a sense of compassionate life. And that was, uh, you know, sort of an impressive set of meetings and conversations that has uh, uh, impacted my thinking and my choices even to this day. And many of the monks that I encountered there sort of lived this life. They were big believers in nonviolence. To the point that uh, I outline my experience and life with uh, one of such monks, mentors, and teachers who would even, you know, uh, resist or discourage others and himself from killing snakes and scorpions and so on. And we were living in an area that were infested with such creatures, and he would he would make a point to be gentle and, and to save them. And and these were the things that that you you read a lot about compassion, but it was. Uh, uh, living with such teachers, encountering them, meeting with them, that you saw 
sort of such actions getting manifested on a daily basis. I'm sure everyone here is uh, familiar with the Dalai Lama. And maybe you can, and I know I, if I'm uh, not mistaken, that he ordained you. And I also know that you've had a close, uh, longstanding uh, relationship with him. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the path that led you to that initial interaction. I think, you know, the circle of Buddhist teachers and Buddhist monastics in India in those days was quite small. And when, you know, a 10-year-old kid from a a prominent family just shows up, I think a lot of uh, monks were uh, both concerned and I would say baffled by by this decision. And uh, the Japanese monks were very close to this one gentleman uh, Bakula Rinpoche, who was a very renowned and revered, not only Buddhist teacher, but a diplomat. Uh, he was a member of the Indian parliament and served as Indian ambassador for, for over a decade. So they they reached out to him asking, you know, who is this child and what should be done uh, with him? And that was sort of the first sort of uh, introduction to the Tibetan Buddhist world. And I was encouraged to meet with uh, with his holiness a number of times but uh, those days uh, you know i was sort of very settled and not trying to meet any kind of celebrity figures because of my father's role uh, in the indian government we used to meet all kinds of spiritual gurus and so on and in some ways you know i had gone through my own period of disillusionment and so didn't want to sort of have those things influence my journey and one thing i should mention that that in this book you will not find actually much reference to his holiness besides uh, his reference in the dedication of the book. Uh, and partly the reason for that was uh, that uh, once I started to think about it, I realized that I could not uh, do justice in a chapter or two uh, about my relationship with him. So I just left it out uh, pretty much altogether from the book, uh, hoping that uh, if uh, there's a future opportunity, then then maybe I'll have... Uh, time to lay that out. Uh, but uh, but it has been a remarkable uh, relationship. And, and I think uh, it's because of his blessing and, and so on that, uh, you know, my parents finally did agree to let me become a monk. I don't know how much you or the audience here is aware of, of, of the history in Buddhism. Uh, what had happened historically was that, uh, you know, after Buddha left home and started the Buddhist monastic order, he, of course, left a son behind. And uh, after several years, when the Buddha came back to his town, his former wife and the mother of the son, Rahula, uh, basically said, go and ask Buddha for your rights as a son. And so Rahula goes to Buddha and Buddha just ordains him as a novice. But he was still a minor. And so Buddha's father, who was the king uh, of that province, he got furious. He got upset and he comes to Buddha and he basically, you know, this is what happens. You know, you could be enlightened, but your father is going to treat you. As, as his child. And so in front of the entire Sangha, he sort of blasts Buddha and says, you know, you can't just go around ordaining everybody to become a monk. You know, some people need to sort of maintain a lay life and they need to, you know, uh, continue with the responsibilities. And so a, re- a rule was put into place that uh, in order to become a monk, you had to have uh, permission of your parents and uh, if the parents are alive. So it was it was rule that was that was put into place with with all the good intentions, but it became a major obstacle in my own choices 
because uh, you know I, I I say this jokingly, but it's quite true that uh, it took my parents 18 years of convincing to even agree to meet with the Dalai Lama. <laughs> you know that's a, that's how challenging uh, the the whole thing was. And and if you read the book, you will get this gist that you know as far as uh, my family was concerned, I was simply somebody who was stolen by the Buddhist order and brainwashed. And so, so they had all this uh, reservations and reluctance uh, about this thing. But I think it was much due to the kindness of His Holiness that my parents finally saw my choice or my decision to be, quote-unquote, legitimate in some ways. Even to this day, I, uh, you know, uh, they never had a, anything against Buddhism. You know, they're very open-minded, liberal individuals and very kind individuals. They have nothing against Buddhism. But uh, but given the context of India and given that I was I'm the only son, it it, it raised a lot of uh, social challenges. One of the terms that you use in your book and actually talk about is your meeting and interacting with various tulkus, and uh, maybe you can explain to those listening what that term means in the context of Buddhism but also uh, your interactions with some of these individuals, and particularly one individual who is revered as an extraordinary teacher, but has somewhat been unorthodox and does not connect himself specifically with the monastery, but wonders the earth. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Tulku is uh, tulku is a term that that literally translates as uh, as living Buddha. In in English, it's a rough translation, but it simply implies that in Buddhist tradition, there's a distinction between rebirth and reincarnation. And again, you know, it's something if you if you believe in the Buddhist worldview, it makes uh, somewhat of a sense. My joke oftentimes says that if you believe in reincarnation, well, if you believe in rebirth. Uh, well and good. If you don't, I'll see you next time around and we can have this discussion again. The distinction that, that the Buddhists make between rebirth and reincarnation is rebirth is, is of course, something that is propelled by one's actions, uh, actions of mind, body, and speech. So your karma sort of dictates your your uh, birth, life after life. Um, uh, reincarnation is where the consciousness is somewhat evolved and has the ability to make a choice and make a choice in the sense that it can dictate that I'll be born in this particular region or I could be born in this particular family and, and so on. And so tulku is a term that uh, loosely sort of refers to those kinds of consciousness, those kinds of individuals. You know, for example, in the case of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, perhaps one of the most well-known tulku uh, cases. If you watch uh, Martin Scorsese's Kundun, it sort of outlines uh, you know how you know how he was uh, born in a poor nomadic family and how he was recognized and so on. But the intent behind reincarnation, of course, is that to come back in a in a manner that uh, you can be helpful uh, to to sentient beings. You can be helpful to the wider world, and also to sort of continue uh, your own uh, spiritual explorations, your own spiritual practice, and so on. And so, of course, uh, uh, living in India, I, I did have. Uh, the good fortune of meeting some wonderful such individuals and 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 uh, two in particular that made great impressions one was Bakhla Rinpoche whom I already mentioned and the other is Sandong Rinpoche who's uh, who's this remarkable uh, individual who grew up 
you know, again, was recognized very early on, I believe at the age of five or six, uh, to be a reincarnation of his previous self, his previous version. Uh, but uh, in his own upbringing in India, he also then met with uh, Krishnamurti and became a friend and a wonderful uh, partner with Krishnamurti. And, and if you know anything about Krishnamurti, he was very anti-institution, anti-guru, anti-religious systems, and so on. And uh, it, it led to sort of this wonderful co-evolution of uh, ideas uh, between the two of them. And that was uh, a blessing in a sense that, that Salman Rinpoche uh, was uh, one of my primary guides and teachers. And, and any time my mind would sort of uh, gravitate towards uh, orthodoxy or would gravitate towards, um, you know, literalism, uh, in religious systems, uh, including Buddhism, uh, he would be the first one to sort of catch me and warn me and say uh, that perhaps is, is not a good route. You should you should inquire further. You should investigate further. So sort of reminding me uh, of this uh, uh, deep-seated uh, kind of pedagogy in, in Buddhist tradition of, of investigation where uh, uh, the Buddha also multiple times said to his disciples that don't uh, accept things uh, just because the Buddha said so. Analyze it, investigate it, just like goldsmith. Test the purity of gold, burn it, smash it, and so on. And this is something, uh, philosophically, as a model, something that has uh, continued to uh, inspire His Holiness, and you will hear him uh, refer to this uh, time and time again, uh, to this sort of, uh, to this sense of inquiry that is embedded in the tradition. And Samdho Rinpoche is, is, is just a phenomenal teacher, phenomenal educator. And I think uh, we, met to, we met him together, right? Once or twice? Uh, More than once. And uh, than once. Yeah, you know, yeah, I've yeah. Uh, had the joy of spending a fair amount of time with him. Right. Somewhat, how should I say, he can be an overwhelming presence, especially if he's trying to make a point to you. <laughs> He's he's a, he's a great teacher, you know. He's a, he's, a, he's a wonderful teacher, and he's very systematic in his thinking. I think in the book I refer to this brief incident that occurred in the during one of his visits to the U.S. And you know, in the in the West, people sort of casually refer to themselves as the friends of the Dalai Lama, or that you know I have known Dalai Lama for so long. You know, oftentimes people just shake hands with the Dalai Lama and they become friends with the Dalai Lama, and and it's a it's, it's, it's probably to the kind and gentle presence of His Holiness. Uh, it's to his credit that, that uh, everybody believes that they're friends or close friends of the Dalai Lama. Uh, and, uh, and so he was, he was addressing an audience in, in, in some university, I think, in the U.S. And uh, he is, by, by all references, a close friend of the Dalai Lama. But then somebody just in the audience asked him, you know, uh, so you're a friend of the Dalai Lama. How has that been? And and I thought, you know, he would just respond just like, you know, it has been it has been wonderful or amazing and, and whatnot. But Samno Rinpoche, being such a wonderful guide and teacher, he went on into a twenty-five minute explanation, firstly of what friendship means. And then he sort of, you know, delineated all forms of friendship that exist in our society. And then he went into this whole understanding of what it means to be a virtuous friend, a spiritual friend. This, again, in, in Buddhism, this idea of a Kalyan Mitra. And then, after all that explanation of what it means to be a friend, then he went on to talk about his friendship with His Holiness. And, and it's, just, it's just remarkable. It's just joyful to, to see such, a, uh, you know, such delight in his thoroughness. 
It is interesting, though, because certainly I think in the training of a monk, uh, for those who may or may not know, learning how to debate and learning how to critically think, which in some ways is what you alluded to in this analogy of uh, taking the metal and testing it, is a fundamental part. And I think for those who have, if you will, the academic training of being a monk or get the Geshe degree, this is an integral part of how they uh, process and evaluate uh, situations. Would you agree with that? Yes, uh, certainly. Again, you know, uh, one of the things you have to understand, uh, recognize is that Buddhist monasticism, unlike uh, most uh, monastic movements in the West, was not, was not always a cloistered movement. You know, uh, early uh, examples of Buddhist monasteries were right smack in the middle of the city. And despite of several attempts by even Buddha's own disciples or relatives of Buddha, that, that monks should simply stay in the monastery and will provide for them and so on. Buddha made it a point that monks should come out of the monastery every day on their begging grounds uh, so that they have some interaction with the civic society, with civic population. Um, and, and that would also serve as an exchange for ideas and so on. And the first sort of monastic institutions that then evolved into university settings and, and uh, uh, the most prominent of which became Nalanda. But there were three monastic institutions in early India uh, 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 that have roots in Buddhist monasticism, uh, Nalanda, Takshila, and Vikramshila. And they were literally sort of, they were occupying, you know, hundreds of acres of land with tens of thousands of students. And the only purpose being that they would explore, they would, they would learn uh, the art, they would practice the discipline. And they would perfect uh, uh, the knowledge. And, and hundreds of years down the road, when Buddhism was introduced into Tibet, those were the features that was also sort of introduced into Tibet. Hence the idea of Geshe, somewhat akin to an academic degree. But, you know, just like anything uh, happens, we, we cannot say that academia is free of dogmas. Uh, we cannot say that uh, academia, just, just because one, one takes the path of a PhD that one is uh, free from uh, dogmatic thinking or doctrinal thinking. And so there are always exceptions to the method, and, and, and the religious institution, the religious world, is, is not immune to that. And so even in the, in the Buddhist tradition, you, you come to recognize that, that uh, despite of the tradition's emphasis on investigation, on inquiry, you know, oftentimes we do get stuck in simply uh, becoming literalists, uh, you know, memorization of scriptures, memorization of texts, debating based on those memorizations rather than debating for the purpose of discovering the truth, which is which was the original sort of function of uh, organized debate in, 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 in Buddhist tradition. And so it's, it's, it's useful to, to remind individuals constantly that, yes, the tradition is constantly evolving, but this, this original premise of uh, investigation, this investigative nature, that helped the tradition thrive for the last 2,500 years or so, is something still of, of tremendous importance uh, that often gets lost in translation. You have been blessed with uh, interacting with a number of what I would say are evolved spiritual and religious leaders, and I have been, to some degree, in the same situation. 
And it's interesting you mentioned about dogma and even, if you will, sometimes individuals who theoretically, by their training, it should be antithetical to be dogmatic. We find that to be the case. But I would suggest in my own experience, and I think you would probably agree that if you spend time with an evolved spiritual or religious leader, they actually sit above the dogma because there are certain truths, I think, that are far beyond the dogma, uh, compassion, unconditional love, the power of nurturing and caring for others, the transcendent nature of our humanity when we leave, uh, live a life of service and connection and to try to uh, alleviate suffering. No, very true. Uh, I, I think there's the sense of uh, cultivating a, a spiritual presence, you know, uh, which is very different from the spiritual paraphernalia that uh, oftentimes, you know, most of us get, get uh, used to accumulating, and you know, uh, when rather than looking at uh, uh, signs of spiritual accomplishments, we begin to look at, well, how many disciples does this teacher have? How many bestsellers has this teacher written? Uh, you know, uh, uh, how many countries his, uh, his mission sort of uh, is expanded into and so on. Uh, <coughs> those are still sort of, you know, uh, pretty much signs of, uh, of a spiritually materialistic culture. And the other day I was having another conversation around consumer behavior that uh, spiritual materialism is, is, is actually sign of, uh, you know, a, a deep-seated consumer behavior that, that we have all sort of given into to the point where we don't even know how to relate to religion or how to relate to spiritual tradition. We simply want to consume it. In contrast to that, the idea that a being, an individual who has cultivated uh, some of these fundamental aesthetics, some of these fundamental qualities of what it means to be spiritual, to the point that it sort of oozes from their very presence, you see, that they don't even need to say anything. They don't even need to say a word. And, and that is one of the one of the remarkable things of uh, my encounters with many of such great masters, where either we did not even speak the same language, or not a single word was spoken. We simply sat in silence. And in that silence, we were sort of transported into another dimension of, of, of conversation and, and, and so on. That nothing was said and nothing was heard, but a lot was learned, you know. And, and, and that's the kind of, uh, you know, presence that, that I believe is, is something that we should uh, look for. You know, if we should crave for anything, it is that kind of cultivation. You know, you, you look at His Holiness, and I, and I do remember at one point some years ago uh, with His Holiness of Dalai Lama, there was a sense that, you know, we were having this conversation that, you know, what happens to people when he enters an auditorium of 10,000 people and suddenly there's pin drop silence? And I can say objectively that at least 90% of the audience is joyful, in a joyful state. You know, there are, of course, the 5% skeptics and the others, but 90% of the audience is joyful. And, and, and His Holiness often says that, you know, it's not that I have something new to offer, you know, uh, uh, that, that, uh, or, or, or that uh, they want something out of me. It's just that I sit there being one of them, you know, and he often starts his remarks by saying, I'm one of seven billion humans, that being one of them. But he's kundum, meaning he has, he's the presence. He has cultivated this compassionate presence that he doesn't even need to say anything. 
He just sits there and you're basking in that presence and it simply inspires you to become a better version of yourself. It, is, it inspires you to become the, the best thing that you are. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. <laughs>